Hello, my name is uh, Peter Schneider. I'm a vascular surgeon and I have a high level of interest as uh, all of us who are passionate in the vascular field have a very keen interest in the issue of paclitaxel safety. So today's program that we're going to talk about is paclitaxel safety in the periphery, a review of recent literature and guidelines. And to help us with that, I've got uh, two internationally acclaimed experts, Dr. Dan Clare, vascular surgeon from South Carolina, Dr. John Laird, who is a cardiologist and practices in Healdsburg, California. And this program is supported by an educational grant from Medtronic. The learning objectives for this program are uh, listed here. We'd like to assess approaches to informed consent for patients, and this is, of course, a big issue. We want to define patients who are at high risk for re-stenosis as, um, as uh, sort of recommended by the FDA in the most recent uh, communication to us as, as physicians. We want to understand the implications of big data, that is, uh, large data sets, and how we can use them to help better understand the situation. And we also want to take a good hard look at the FDA letter of August of 2019, since that will uh, sort of influence daily practice. So Dan is going to kick us off with a, with a talk. So uh, I, I titled this uh, my my talk the sad tale of drug eluding technology and, and how did how did we get here because I really feel like we've all learned a lesson from some of when, what went on with this uh, those are my disclosures it all started in de, in December of 2018 when uh, Kitsanos and his group uh, had the the published meta analysis of the performance of these devices uh, in the Journal of the American Heart Association. And of course, there was a pretty big response to this, uh, this meta-analysis because it was at odds with what we had heard from several prior studies. Uh, the FDA, soon after this, uh, less than a month later, or just over a month later, I should say, came out with an initial letter to healthcare providers, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But I think the medical community also came to arms at the same time to try and say, what is going on here? Can we do a better analysis of this data? That was done at Link, where there was a public presentation of the data and discussion among experts there. And then the Viva Leaders Forum, which really brought together a group of specialists from different areas to try and talk about these events and what was going on. And at the same time, the FDA did its own analysis and came out with the first uh, letter to healthcare providers, basically um, talking about the, the treatment of PAD with paclitaxel and uh, the potentially increased mortality that was noted with this. They uh, planned and underwent a, a June panel where we uh, talked about uh, the performance of paclitaxel and the risks associated with it, along with a number of other studies that were done to look at it. And then finally, this led to an update of that uh, FDA letter to providers, and we're going to go a little bit over those uh, here. So the first response from the FDA to the meta-analysis came out in January, on January the 17th, and, and really the key points in this were uh, a noting of the potential for increased long-term mortality after using paclitaxel-coated balloons and stents to treat PAD. And, and I think from the standpoint of clinicians who heard this at the time, most had some concern, but probably very little change in the clinical practice. And one, one uh, meta-analysis doesn't define standards of care. 
But there was actually an editorial frenzy. I looked up and I saw at least 15 different editorials uh, or letters to the editor that were written in response to the initial meta-analysis pointing out flaws. Vascular surgeons in particular, I think, were incredibly quiet on the topic. Most of this discourse occurred in interventional cardiology uh, and interventional radiology journalists, and most interventionalists really continued to do what they had been doing. That's very, very different, I think, from the letter that came out on March 15th. And here the FDA said that there, there was a signal of increased long-term mortality in the study subjects treated with paclitaxel. And importantly, they recommended alternative treatment options to be considered for most patients with PAD. And for myself, my own impression at that point was, what, what did I miss? What, what was in this study that, that I hadn't seen? And, and the FDA recommended we continue to monitor patients, which all of us treating patients with peripheral artery disease, disease do. There was, at that time, I think, pan-society concern about what was going on with, uh, with these studies and with our patients. But there were differing approaches. Some uh, healthcare systems actually took these devices completely off the shelf, took the decision out of the physician's hands. Some physicians felt threatened and at risk by this and t- so stopped using these products uh, significantly. And I have to admit, in my own practice, I continued to use them because of the high risk of patients that I deal with on a routine basis. So after, uh, after that second letter from the FDA, they did uh, clarify that they wanted to move forward with convening a panel And frankly, I was at that panel. It was interesting to be there. There was an enormous amount of information that was presented from companies who produce and sell these devices, but also from clinicians who use them and researchers who have evaluated their performance in patients as well. There were 12 questions that were asked. You see seven of those questions in this slide here. But uniformly, the the, uh, panel members did decide that, yes, they did see a signal in the data that uh, that was evaluated, They were not sure there was a class effect, but were unwilling to exclude any of the devices that contained or utilized paclitaxel. Obviously, they agreed that having more data would make this uh, analysis better, but there was not enough data to identify subgroups who may be at particularly high risk, and they could not find a single cause of death. Again, the process of this was a lot of information presented. The panel members then discussed the questions between them and then came up with, a, with an answer that they came that was a, basically an agreement among all of those individuals. And I think some of those individuals were very vocal about their opinions, some not so much. And, and I think it was, uh, we got a good discussion, thoughtful discussion, but I'm not sure we got a lot of really meaningful answers for us as clinicians. Uh, they they did, did not see a dose mortality relationship, and all of the panel members felt that continuing preclinical studies might be beneficial, but they understood the significant expense that this would entail, and we're not sure that this would answer all of the questions, frankly, moving forward as well. This led ultimately to an update that was delivered to clinicians in August of this year. And while I think I was hoping for more from this letter, there was really very little change from what was issued in the FDA in March. And that is that they recognized there was an increased rate of long-term mortality in these patients. And for many of these patients, alternative treatments should be sought for treatment. And they identified only those patients who felt were at particularly high risk for restenosis and repeat interventions in whom these devices should be used. 
Uh, this was, uh, again, uh, it outlined future actions from the FDA, but no real change in the recommendations for clinicians, which you see highlighted here. Monitor patients, consider uh, you know, an increased rate of mortality, discuss the risk-benefit ratio uh, with patients, and consider that when you're making choices about how to intervene and what to use during your interventions, and also to have discussions about patients' expectations, concerns, and preferences and then assure optimized medical therapy and report adverse events. Um, the FDA also uh, offered to continue collaboration with industry. This was one of the first times I actually saw industry partners uh, who, have, who are competitors working together to try and continue to provide and allow the availability of these devices to treat patients with severe PAD. Uh, there were uh, some labeling updates that were going to happen, and they offered to collaborate with investigators to continue studies to try and answer this question. But I think what we're left with after all of this is continued questions. And, you know, who is, who is that patient who has a particularly high risk for restenosis? In my own practice, I think that makes up a majority of the patients I treat. And, in fact, when Kitsanos presented his data at the FDA panel, he noted that any patient who had more than one risk factor had the risk of mortality mitigated. So any patient who has two high-risk uh, characteristics. So if you have hypertension and hypercholesterolemia, you actually don't have an increased risk of mortality compared with patients who have only a single risk. And frankly, in my own practice, and for most of us who treat patients with severe PAD like this, that's the majority of our patients. I think this risk is mitigated in the majority of patients we see. Uh, again, providing informed consent is difficult to do with these patients. It's hard to educate patients, particularly regarding what is the risk-benefit ratio and, and is it enough to, to warrant use in this patient. From my, again, from my own standpoint, if you have CLI, your mortality risk is so high and your risk of recurrent stenosis is so high that there's no question there's a value in providing these patients with intervention with devices and drug to try and reduce their risk of restenosis. And there wasn't any discussion about what is the risk of repeat intervention for these patients, which is clearly real. And in monitoring your own patients, how do we do this? The FDA was not very forthcoming in how we do this. And death was really what I view as the thing that we were trying to look at here. Does that mean every patient death is a reportable event? If you've had a paclitaxel device, do I have to go on and, and, and report every patient who dies? These are high mortality risk patients anyway. And the risk of litigation for patients using these devices, I think physicians feel that they're in the crosshairs. But in reality, these patients have such a high mortality, it's hard to imagine that there's any increased risk of litigation for patients. And frankly, what's the risk for litigation in losing a limb in patient who requires a repeat intervention where they've thrombosed something that you've done the intervention to try and save their foot anyway? And I also would wonder, is, is it likely that we'll ever reasonably answer this, uh, this question? So in conclusion, then, we basically have a single flawed meta-analysis that's led to these types of responses and an FDA response that at least continues to provide us the ability to use these devices, but in my own opinion, leaves the physicians in the crosshairs. It's protected the FDA. It's left industry with an inability to really push utilizing these devices more aggressively and leaves us as physicians making decisions that are not well thought out and not easily outlined by the FDA. I think it could have been better if the FDA had looked at what Kitsanos presented and offered perhaps a, a better opinion of 
who are those high-risk patients and who essentially has the risk mitigated because they have more than one risk factor uh, along the way too. It would also be beneficial for us to understand what are the risk factors in populations that are already, uh, already evaluated and essentially to limit recommendations regarding alternative devices to those patients who are extremely low risk of restenosis rather than doing the alternative. And frankly, there are a very large group of patients who are at high risk for restenosis, but it's a very small group of patients uh, that, that are at low risk for, for uh, reintervention or restenosis. And I think that might have been a better way to state what they were trying to say in this patient population. And the, the critical issue, again, that I think the FDA did say is that they did at least acknowledge the efficacy of these devices in reducing mortality and reducing reintervention rates. And that's really what we want to provide as value for our patients here. Very good. Well, thank you very much for that. Oh, gosh, lots to discuss there. It's a, it's a, I know John is going to talk about the, uh, the issue of risk, so we'll take a deeper dive into that. Um, but let me ask you a little more about the panel, if I could. So I also was uh, uh, had a chance to uh, participate. I found it absolutely fascinating. Uh, they brought together on the panel people from multiple different walks of life, including some patients, and then also some uh, practitioners who practice outside the area of vascular, which I found really interesting. So one of the things they talked about on the panel was this idea that to solve this with yet another prospective randomized controlled trial didn't seem very realistic. What, what, do you, what, what was your take on that? Well, I think they understood that going through this, to, because the differences were not dramatic, that in order to do this, it would require a very large number of patients over an extended period of time. And the fact is, I think they all agreed that there was value in doing this. You know, it, it's interesting to me, I, I felt like the the individuals on that panel who provided the most valuable input were the patients and families of patients who were there and talked about how happy they were to have this technology available. The benefits. To deal. Yeah. And the focus was all about risk, really, but the patients were more interested in the benefits, that, which that's absolutely was correct. fascinating. Well, I mean, we, we get into our in, into a, we take a deep dive into our specialty every day, and sometimes we maybe forget that bigger picture of the, who are we trying to help here. You know, the other thing that was interesting about the panel was there were two statisticians on the panel, and both of them brought up the issues of looking at large databases and the biases of large databases, but none of them actually talked about the biases of looking at these trial patients so these are a minority of the patients that we see. In actual fact of practice, I would bet they make up less than 5% of what most interventions are done uh, on or, or what you know, patients who have these interventions. And frankly, there's an enormous amount of bias because we're you know, evaluating a group of patients who don't reflect what we treat in the real world. And that, to me, was never even presented or discussed by panel members the the, uh, the st statisticians seem much more concerned about the potential biases of, of real-world treatment of patients rather than the realistic bias that you, you have to see in this group of patients compared with the patients we treat on a daily basis. Right. Well, John, you're so well-known for your uh, work as a clinical trialist and running trials. One of the things that the FDA did make clear in their letter of uh, August 7, which had not been clear prior, 
is uh, that they felt that the trials should continue to enroll, that we needed more information, not less. So what's your take on that? And what do you think about the information that we should be looking forward to that will come from trials that are either enrolled or currently enrolling? Well, it's a, it's a very good question. I think, um, you know, one of the things that we're sort of suffering from now is the fact that we had trials with relatively small numbers. They were powered to show efficacy. Uh, they were two-to-one randomizations often, so the number of patients uh, in the control arm were relatively small, and then you have attrition over time, and you have the potential to introduce a lot of bias and or accidental results, which I think personally we saw here. We just saw uh, differences in mortality that were by chance because of a relatively small control group. I think, um, and I think there was a significant overreaction, as Dan talked about, uh, to the publication of the meta-analysis. There were trials that were halted. There were trials where drug-eluting technologies were no longer allowed to be you know, used in those trials. Uh, thankfully, a lot of that has you know, calmed down a little bit, and we're now seeing uh, a re- restarting of trials with drug, drug technologies. I think going forward, I think we need to try and take a closer look at the dose because there's been issues raised about dose. Uh, certainly, we need to um, you know, monitor patients for a longer period of time to see, um, to see the, the longer-term impacts of the paclitaxel. But you know, there's talk about 10-year follow-up in, these, in part of these trials, which is really not realistic. I think there's a whole host of things that we could look at that were not really clearly addressed in the, the original trials. Like when a patient gets re-intervened upon, he's very likely you know, to get a drug-looting device. You know? So the patients in the angioplasty arms of many of these trials probably were treated with a drug-looting device, and that wasn't captured as part of the, 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 the data set. And, and that would certainly impact the, the mortality that was seen in some of these trials. So there's a lot of things that uh, need to be looked at. Thankfully, though, the trials are continuing to, to enroll patients, uh, and uh, we'll learn a lot more going forward. Right. Yeah, good, good points. One, one of the things I find fascinating and uh, a little bit uh, paradoxical uh, is this concept that... Uh, uh, coronary stents that delivered paclitaxel. Obviously, we're not using them now because we, we have a, a medication that works better, but that delivers a dose around 0.1 milligrams on average, I mean, a very small dose, but there wasn't really any mortality concern around that. And of course, the oncologic use of, of um, paclitaxel sometimes delivered in uh, up to 1,500 milligrams. So a hundred or more times what you would deliver doing a peripheral vascular case. And there's no mortality issues there. In fact, if you give paclitaxel in combination with other things, you get a reduction in mortality. And these are patients very often with early stage breast cancer and good survival otherwise. They're expected to survive. And it's even safe or at least it's FDA approved for uh, women who are pregnant who have breast cancer. So that's a massive dose and a very small dose. And somehow the in-between dose is the one that causes a problem. It doesn't really make sense to me. Not at all. Um, we're going to take a short break. Dr. Parikh is here. He's going to join us. Welcome back. Uh, I'd like also to introduce Dr. Sahil Parikh, who's a uh, cardiologist in New York, and uh, he'll be contributing also to our program. 
And now back to Dr. Laird, who's going to talk about what constitutes high risk, something we've already touched on, but we'd like to take a deep dive. Yeah, well, thanks, Peter. Well, I have to say that Dan's presentation was fantastic. I mean, it was really a great overview of uh, how our world was turned upside down and the things that have gone on since the meta-analysis was published last December. And I think, to a certain extent, the FDA has left us as physicians hanging a little bit. I mean, we're kind of in a tough spot. We have a very strong belief uh, that uh, paclitaxel eluting devices are effective for our patients. They've improved outcomes dramatically. We've seen a tremendous drop in the need for additional interventions. Um, and we believe a, very strongly in them, but we're in a tough spot in terms of whether we can actually use them or not. So this is from the letter uh, from the FDA of August 7th, uh, 2019, where uh, they commented on that for individual patients judged to be at particularly high risk for restenosis and repeat femoral popliteal interventions, clinicians may determine that the benefits of using a paclitaxel-coated device outweigh the risk of late mortality. So they made the statement, but they didn't define high risk or particularly high risk. And I think as Dan alluded to, I think you could make the comment that any patient with femoral popliteal disease is high risk or particularly high risk for restenosis. If you look at the recent randomized trials, including the drug Cotabloon randomized trials, in the balloon angioplasty arm of these trials, restenosis rates are around 50% in relatively straightforward lesions, lesion lengths of 8 to 9 centimeters. So if you look at the real-world patients with longer lesions or higher-risk lesions, uh, the restenosis rates with standard therapies are high. So you could make that case. You could also make the case that any patient, as you said, with critical limb ischemia is a particularly high-risk patient. It's not well-defined in the literature uh, in terms of what constitutes high risk for restenosis. These are the different guidelines which don't clearly uh, outline or dictate what's uh, high risk. But if you look at the published literature on femoral popliteal angioplasty or endovascular therapies, you can get a sense uh, of what constitutes higher risk for restenosis from these trials. Classically, diabetes mellitus has been associated with higher risk of restenosis, tobacco use, renal disease, female gender, in terms of patient-related factors. And again, I would throw into that mix critical ischemia being a higher patient-related risk factor. And then in terms of lesion-related uh, things that have been associated with a higher risk of restenosis, there's chronic total occlusion, instant restenosis, long lesions, pick your length, uh, and severe calcification. And I think also you could add to this list uh, poor runoff, which could be either a patient-related or a lesion-related uh, risk factor, depending upon your perspective. If we look at uh, the results from the IMPACT SFA trial, which was the randomized trial of the IMPACT Admiral drug coated balloon against standard balloon angioplasty for femoral popliteal disease, and particularly looking at the subgroup analysis as shown here in this forest plot, we, set, we see that for those patients with these higher risk features, advanced age, female gender, uh, critical limb ischemia, long lesions, total occlusion, these are the subgroups that actually received the most benefit from drug coated balloon angioplasty. One particular high-risk lesion uh, cohort is the patients with uh, instant restenosis. We've known for some time that 
uh, these patients are likely to need multiple or frequent recurrent interventions because of the failure of standard therapies to treat them effectively. And we have now several data sets looking at drug coated balloon usage in patients with instant restenosis, showing really quite uh, good results. On the far left of the slide, we see the results from the Impact Global ISR study. We have very long instant uh, restenosis lesions of greater than uh, 17 centimeters with excellent one-year primary patency. And we see from SFA ISR, the PLACE IR trial, and the FAIR uh, trial, uh, really remarkably good patency rates at one year of uh, greater than 90% across the board for instant restenosis. In many cases, uh, complex lesions with a high percentage of instant occlusion. I wanted to show one case to highlight one, I think the benefits of drug-coated balloon usage in general, but also the benefit in a high-risk uh, case. And this is a 61-year-old male that I've known for quite some time now, a former uh, tobacco user, history of hypertension, coronary artery disease with a prior bypass, right lower extremity claudication, and rest pain symptoms at the time I first met him. He had previously undergone a right fempop bypass uh, with uh, uh, autologous vein at another hospital, and then unfortunately suffered graft occlusion. And when he presented to me, he had, as mentioned, ischemic rest pain symptoms and with a very low ABI. We took him to the cardiac catheterization laboratory in March of 2014. And you can see he had a long total occlusion of his superficial femoral artery extending down into the P2 segment of his popliteal artery with otherwise good infrapopliteal runoff. At that time, I wanted to try and offer him what I thought was the best uh, opportunity for sustained patency with an endovascular therapy, so we performed uh, balloon angioplasty followed by implantation of drug-looting stents with a nice angiographic result. Unfortunately, he came back about a year later in March of 2015 with recurrent symptoms and now has occlusion of these drug-looting stents in his superficial femoral artery and popliteal artery. So a very unfavorable situation. He's failed a bypass operation. He's failed uh, drug-looting stents. And he has a situation that has a very high rate of reoccurrence with treatment with standard endovascular therapies. A Tosaka 3 instant occlusion, probably restenosis rates of at least 80% uh, in this situation. So we treated him at that time with uh, laser atherectomy, followed by drug-coated balloon angioplasty, uh, March of 2015, and he did well. His symptoms resolved, and... Uh, he uh, remained patent. Uh, I saw him earlier in the year, January of 2019, still doing well, no claudication symptoms, uh, normal ABI, and on duplex. Had really a nice, clean appearance throughout the stents in the SFA with uh, minimal intimal hyperplasia. So I would submit and I ask uh, the co-panelists uh, that this is just not something that you would see with any other kind of therapy. So I think it highlights the potential benefit of drug-coated therapies, but also, I think, highlights a, a good example of a high-risk uh, patient. What are other high-risk uh, situations, or particularly high-risk uh, situations? Well, long lesions. And this is another area that has been studied quite well with drug-coated balloon uh, technologies in the IMPACT global study, as well as Lutonix uh, global study, 
and the SFA long uh, study. In the impact uh, global uh, complex long lesion uh, cohort, we saw remarkably good results despite the fact that we had very long lesions, almost 29 centimeter lesions, with a 70% CTO rate and a 20% instant restenosis rate. Despite the complexity of these particularly high-risk lesions, primary patency at uh, one year was 89%. In the, uh, the other impact global uh, publication, we saw for lesion lengths of 26 centimeters, again, excellent primary patency at 91%. Another high-risk or particularly high-risk uh, situation is chronic total occlusions. We have good data from a couple of sources including the impact global CTO uh, cohort, imaging cohort, where we had long lesions, again, of almost 23 centimeters, all of which uh, had at least, were at least partly totally occluded. Uh, despite uh, this complex lesion cohort, primary patency at one year, 85%. So really excellent results. And there's been a randomized trial comparing uh, drug-coated balloon with drug-looting stent, that also had a significant uh, percentage of chronic total occlusions, again, so showing good results with primary patency rate of 75% at one year for drug code balloon technology. So in summary, drug code balloons work particularly well and consistently well in patients at higher risk for restenosis, as we outlined today, uh, chronic total occlusions, long lesions, instant restenosis. The observed clinical benefit supports the use of the impact admiral DCB in patients with ISR, long lesions, and CTO, although longer-term studies with larger patient cohorts will be needed to further clarify the treatment options for these high-risk patients and to better uh, kind of elucidate uh, the safety issues that have been talked about already today. Very good. Thank you, John. That was uh, very informative. And and uh, as you highlighted, um, this is a decision that we need to have. Uh, we need to make it multiple times, typically per week, uh, as we're talking to patients. And uh, Dr. Preek is going to talk about uh, consenting those patients uh, next, and that's going to be an interesting discussion. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and, and he's going to tell us how he does it. But this whole issue of the, you know, what constitutes high risk, um, and the question I have for you is, there are lesion-related high-risk factors, but then there are other high-risk factors. You already mentioned one, CLI. They're at very high risk for amputation. So wouldn't you want a treatment then is good, that where you can maintain patency, hopefully, right through the period it takes to heal the wound, which is typically not something that heals immediately. There's also, uh, there are also patients that, um, that have comorbid conditions where uh, perhaps they're on the frail end on the medical spectrum, and they're not a good patient to consider, a, for example, a bypass as opposed to treating a long lesion. So are there, are there other things that we should be thinking about? I mean, how do you approach the, the frail patient? Are there medical high-risk factors that you feel like put a patient into a category where, you know, I really want to do endovascular on this particular one? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, the heart failure, patients with heart failure, the elderly patient, very frail patient, critical limb ischemia, obviously talked about. I mean, those are immediately the things that uh, that uh, come to mind when you think about patients whose life expectancy is probably going to be pretty short no matter what you do. And your goal is really to improve their quality of life, 
to keep them from losing their leg because when you have an elderly, frail patient and they lose their leg, it's really, that's kind of the beginning of the end for them. You know, you didn't even talk about, but, but also involved in this is how independent is the patient? So a lot of these elderly patients, actually just a simple assessment of their independence with doing their activities of daily living. You know, if they're barely getting by to do those, and we can't provide a, a procedure that's going to provide them with resolution of this problem quickly as an outpatient, get them moving again, that alone may cost them their independence. And, and that, for a family, can break a family, frankly. And the other thing, you, you know, John, just to point out in that patient that you highlighted, you know, they had a, a paclitaxel device, and that paclitaxel device didn't have a complete failure like we see with non-paclitaxel coated stents. So you were able to get through that and retreat, but that's difficult. We don't talk about that, but paclitaxel not only does it reduce restenosis rates, but when vessels do restenose, it's not the same issue that we're dealing with in non-paclitaxel coated stents. Those are much more challenging interventions, and in fact, in my practice, they're almost exclusively surgical revascularization. So, I mean, that patient actually had benefit twice from, from having drug-coded uh, technology. And he's a relatively young man, and it's great to be able to, uh, to take someone like that and give them their life back, you know, yeah. a dramatic improvement in his quality of life. And when you presented that case, I saw, Sahil, that uh, when John was saying, uh, really, you have to deliver drugs. Because, and I know you've had a lot of research experience yeah. in, in your career with uh, the science behind drug delivery and which drugs to deliver. So give us just a quick snapshot. So in my opinion, that particular patient, you know, if you treat with mechanical means only, uh, it's severely limiting as opposed to when you add the potential to deliver drug with it. What yeah, do you I, think? Think, I think this is a case in point, right? You had an excellent above-knee fempop bypass with a venous conduit which has been previously considered the gold standard. Uh, and, and that had failed. And then uh, you had, uh, as, as Dan pointed out, an excellent uh, result acutely with the paclitax eluting stents and a much more simple re-intervention with an exceptionally good long-term patency uh, with drug-coated balloons. Um, and I think that without an antiproliferative, you'd expect that you'd have restenosis within 12 months uh, in a diffuse proliferative sort of uh, fierce kind of restenosis that would be almost impenetrable. And in, in my practice, like you, Dan, I would often refer those patients for a, for a bypass uh, because I know that uh, it's probably not worth multiple repeated interventions to maintain that quality of life. And so this is really a game changer for this kind of high-risk patient. And anti-proliferative therapy really has become the mainstay, I think, over the last decade in, in most practices that tackle these kinds of complex lesions. Um, good, good and the other point is, I mean, you know, John, you pointed out instant restenosis, but restenosis in and of itself is, right. is a risk factor for right. recurrent therapy no, needs. Exactly. I mean, as we look at our practices, I've got to tell you, it's just the broad spectrum of the people that I, that I treat. It's, it's the small number of patients who are not at high risk for restenosis right. that we deal with on a regular basis. Yeah. Okay, why don't we go ahead then, uh, Sahil, uh, in... Tell us how you handle this informed consent issue. Yeah, so th thanks very much, Peter, and, and uh, it's a privilege to be here. So informed consent is, is something that we as practitioners struggle with every day on a daily basis. And since uh, the paclitaxel controversy has erupted, um, it's often uh, more complex to get informed consent than to do the procedure. Um, and so 
Uh, I'm going to use a case as an example. This is a typical patient of mine from New York. It's a 72-year-old woman, a diabetic, uh, who comes to her primary care physician with claudication. And she's still working as a housekeeper full-time. And that's how she uh, makes a living and and takes care of herself. And she can only walk a couple of blocks before stopping uh, because of claudication. And uh, she's limited vocationally from performing her uh, for her work. Uh, Past medical history is really typical of these patients diabetic with hypertension and hyperlipidemia and a remote history of breast cancer, which is deemed cured. She's a never smoker and has a family history of premature atherosclerosis, and she's on pretty good conventional medical therapy uh, with an LDL in the 70s. Um, Her exam is, is, as you would expect, she's got uh, a pretty significant uh, decrement in her pulses uh, on the left side, uh, but no evidence of rest pain or wounds or critical limb ischemia, and her non-invasive data uh, are consistent with this, both at rest and with ex- exercise. And you can see that there's some uh, degree of claudication physiology on the right side, but really uh, dramatic uh, uh, diminution of the amplitudes on the left side. And so this is the typical office consultation that all of us probably have. We talk about optimal medical therapy, and she says she's vocationally limited and wants something done right away so that she can get back to her high level of function at work. Um, And she wants the fewest disruptions to her work schedule as possible because she's absolutely reliant on her income to survive. Um, And, uh, you know, I I talked to her about Paclitax-eluting technologies, both the pros and the cons, and her son is there with her, and he translates my, um, you know, boiled-down English uh, into Spanish so that she can understand the bottom line. But it usually comes to this conversation, which seemingly we get to in every one of these patient interactions, which is uh, the patient says, Doc, I trust you. What would you do if I was your mother? And uh, I say that I'll do my best to optimize your procedure, and I will use drug-eluting stents or drug-coated balloons if I feel it's in your best interest, uh, taking into account that her priorities really are to be as, as minimally disrupted from work and as, as functional as she can be. Uh, and the patient usually says, okay, that, that's all I can ask for. Um, and this is sort of a distilled version of the conversation in virtually every patient interaction. And I'm lucky in my practice that virtually every patient that I treat, I see in the office before I treat them. Um, and so as this has evolved, I've looked a little bit more deeply at what is it to, you know, what is it that are the constituent elements of informed consent? And so this is uh, on the slide is what I've, I've abstracted from the American Medical Association website. And really there's three important components. One is the, the patient has to be able to understand the relevant medical information. Then we have to, as clinicians, present the relevant information accurately and sensitively regarding the diagnosis, the nature and purpose of the intervention, and the burdens, risks, and expected benefits of all options, including foregoing treatment. And then subsequently, we have to document this conversation in a way that's uh, appropriate in the medical record. Uh, both for the purposes of clinical care and continuity, but also for medical legal reasons. And so I I think the burden is on us as the clinician to really make sure we've achieved all three of these requisite uh, parts of the informed consent process. And we've talked already about what is high risk, and I use um, sort of a risk stratification algorithm to explain to patients what are the things that constitute high risk, because I want them to understand that the benefit of a drug-eluting technology is to really reduce reintervention and repeat revascularization. And the more of these criteria that a patient has, the greater the likelihood that a drug-eluting technology will help them prevent a repeat procedure. And in this case, the patient really didn't want to miss any more days of work than she had to. 
Um, I also try in, in whatever way possible to distill this data for the layperson, which is, and these are the data we've seen from the various uh, analyses and, and subsequent analyses of aggregate data, um, really demonstrating that the more patients we find in follow-up, the closer to unity uh, are the confidence intervals uh, with respect to the point estimate of increased mortality hazard. In other words, I say that um, the more patients we find in these clinical trials, the less risky we think these devices are. Uh, and then I also point out um, the Medicare real-world data because the overwhelming majority like this patient are Medicare patients. My, my patient population are Medicare beneficiaries. Um, and so with respect to documentation, um, we're part of several clinical trials. And I, I think I, I have to give credit to the, to the industry partners who are doing these clinical trials and coming up with some language that may be useful um, with respect to discussing this and then documenting in the record. Uh, what constitutes high risk and, and what are the risks and benefits of these devices. So uh, I'll read only because I think it's useful to, to, to say it out loud that um, what we write in the chart is that meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials of paclitaxel-coated balloons and stents used to treat PAD in the FEMPOP arteries have identified an increased risk of late mortality at two years and beyond. The magnitude and mechanism for the increased risk in mortality is currently unclear the analyses also demonstrated reduced revascularization rates with drug-containing products. The impact of future device exposure is unknown, as is the impact of other drug-containing devices. And physicians should discuss the benefits and risks of all available treatment options with the patient. This is from our consent forms for several of our RCTs that have subsequently been reactivated for enrollment. And I think it encapsulates in a relatively succinct way um, our thinking about this. Um, so, you know, this patient in particular, you can see, had a relatively straightforward, you know, relatively short segment mid-SFA occlusion with good runoff. And so she probably, other than her age and her diabetic status and the relatively small vessel caliber, didn't have too many of the typical findings we talk about uh, for being high risk for restenosis. But I know that treating her with a drug-eluting technology is likely going to have the best long-term patency and the fewest repeat revascularization. So she was treated with a drug-coated balloon and ha- had an excellent acute and now subsequently in over the last two and a half years clinical outcome with uh, freedom from clinically driven TLR. And she's still working full-time as a housekeeper in, in New York, which uh, for a host of reasons is a demanding uh, profession. Uh, I think you've seen earlier that the, the last year of all of our lives has been subsumed by multiple meetings um, and multiple discussions about this topic. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think it's really important, particularly in the CLI patient population, to recognize that patency matters. So take, for example, this uh, cartoon where we think that optimal perfusion uh, would be in the yellow, and the level of um, uh, perfusion at baseline in a CLI patient is in green. When the metabolic deed outstrips the demand, or the supply rather, such as with the presence of a trauma or a wound, we need to revascularize in order to ensure healing. And then subsequently, the metabolic demand, we think, goes back to baseline, although the science around that is somewhat flimsy. Um, however, uh, we had traditionally said if whether or not that intervention remains open or restenosis doesn't matter. But really, these are the patients we see repeatedly. We call them frequent flyers because they wind up repeatedly getting uh, critical limb ischemia. And each subsequent trip back to the cath lab or to the angio suite or to the hybrid OR um, has with it an increased risk. The re-restenosis patient is even more vexing in terms of how we take care of them, and their risk continues to uh, expand 
and, and increase. So the way I look at it, and I think the way I talk to patients about it, is if they come in with critical limb ischemia as a clinical entity, um, I think it's reasonable, especially in the complex or physiologically older patient, high comorbid risk, frail patients, to use drug-eluting technologies pretty much without uh, further uh, conversation. In those that are younger, it might be reasonable to use uh, drug-eluting technologies, and I counsel them the way I described earlier. For the claudicants, really the only group where I'm potentially cautious about use of drug-eluting technologies and really the young patient, in which I, I now talk to them a lot about adjunctive therapies and or uh, you know, perhaps FEMPOP, uh, FEMPOP bypass or other alternatives, uh, because I think it's in that patient where you have the longest potential exposure, which may uh, give us additional risk. And those are the patients where I think or lose sleep perhaps uh, the most about whether or not to use drug-eluting technologies. Um, but so this is just my formulation, sort of a two-by-two factorial approach uh, to how I, I think about it. Many of us have talked about this uh, in, in a variety of different venues. We've blogged about it. Uh, I'm part of a multi-society coalition. The FDA has convened a rapid uh, you know, pay, uh, private and public partnership to look at this, uh, and guidance on informed consent and, and high risk, I think, are forthcoming from many of our professional societies. I think the one thing that, that we don't have is cover um, from our regulatory agencies. Uh, we've all lived through the IVC filter um, uh, life cycle with respect to medical legal risk. And I think once we have billboard, billboards that, that say, did you get a DCB and call 1-800-GET-A-LAWYER uh, and or a test case, perhaps even more concerningly, um, that, that um, puts a physician at risk, we might have a, a little bit of a different problem. And I think our regulatory bodies have not done enough, in my opinion, uh, to offer us uh, medical legal cover um, in that situation. And that's certainly uh, an area of, of controversy. Thanks very much. Very good. Thank you for that. Um, let me come back to something that you mentioned, um, and that is you alluded to a potential uh, reason why we've been unable to document uh, a, as big a signal as was initially indicated. And you talked about how the um, sponsors of the trials and the various trial sites uh, at the working in collaboration with the FDA, had really done everything they could to find the patients that had been lost to follow-up or had been withdrawn. So what happened when they did that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the, the, uh, the data I showed were a little bit of an eye chart. But essentially now we are down to probably less than 10% lost to follow-up, whereas we'd started in the initial Katsanos analysis with up to 25% lost to follow-up, particularly at the long time points. And so with each subsequent cut at the data, where more loss-to-follow patients were identified and their actual vital status was adjudicated, there seemed to be a reduction in the point estimate of what is the increased hazard of mortality with drug-eluting technologies. And the confidence intervals have commensurately shrunk a little bit and also moved towards unity. In other words, showing no statistical difference between uh, paclitaxel-eluting products and non-drug-coated products. Um, so that would really suggest an ascertainment bias. Potentially, the patients were randomized bias. going in, but right. when they got lost to follow up, that wasn't that part wasn't randomized, That's right. and they were there was some differences there that helps those mortality curves. Right. Uh, the differences sort of diminish, and the curves come together. Right. So, and so those data coupled with the real world data, where there really hasn't been a signal to speak of, um, you know, give us all pause. You know, we've talked a lot about mechanism, plausibility, and so on. Right. Uh, that's just yet another uh, concern that I have about right. the veracity of the signal. So what I'd like to do now is just to um, uh, close up our 
our time together by saying thank you very much. Amazing presentations by Dan, John, and Sahil covering the gambit from kind of what happened, what should we do now, how do we find high risk, what do we do with informed consent. Um, I think this is a, clearly a dynamic situation. Unfortunately, we may be together again talking about this. However, more and more information is accumulating that I think is really helping us. The situation looks completely different now, in my opinion, than it did six, seven, eight months ago. Obviously, the FDA will respond as more information becomes available. So thank you very much. Excellent thank session. Thanks, thank you, Peter. And thanks for watching. We hope this has been helpful.